You're listening to the Sans Pants Network. Home of comedy, <laughs> culture, <laughs> adventures, and ghosts. Hi everyone, welcome to Bookish. I'm George DeBrellis. Uh, this is show we ask you, what's your story and what does it say about you? Today on the show we have a prominent Italian-Australian journalist now based in London and specialising in European affairs, politics, social policy and the arts. She was also very recently co-authored a new book titled On The Scent. Pleasure to have you on, Paola Totoro. Overjoyed to be here, George. Thank you. Uh, my pleasure. Um, I guess I actually, when I was writing out your intro, I was like, I've wasn't sure if I should very clearly say co-authored or it's okay to just say authored and don't even worry about Robert's involvement. <laughs> I wasn't sure how to phrase that. Poor, poor old Robert. Robert's my husband um, and mm-hmm. he... Oh, let's he, forget him. <laughs> let's just forget him. He, um, he played a very important role, but in the end, um, you know, the science and the experience had to be in the, in the first person. So absolutely don't ignore him, but yes, he's happy for me to speak for the book. <laughs> I've got permission. Okay, right. <laughs> yeah, let's start actually there. Why not? Uh, what was the input from each of you co-authoring this book, I guess? You know what? Actually, before that, maybe we should give a bit of background on what the book is, and then we can go into that. So what is the book that you've written recently? Well, the book um, is called On the Scent, and the subtitle which tells its story really is it's unlocking the mysteries of smell and how its loss can change your world. And effectively, it came of my experience on March 27, 2020, um, here in London, when I went to the bathroom. We'd been in lockdown for exactly a week. It was, I remember it was the night that Boris Johnson was, it was announced that he had, uh, he had COVID and it was going to hospital. And I went to the bathroom, I'd washed my hands a gazillion times, as we were told to do, if you remember, all that time ago. And I put mm-hmm. on this um, hand cream and couldn't smell it. It's a very strong, lovely Aesop. Australian hand cream, nothing. Went to perfumes, couldn't smell a thing, and then in a panic put my nose in the, a bottle of bleach and, you know, that feeling of bleach when you draw your head back and you think you're going to die, nothing. Mm. So I knew from that moment that I'd lost my sense of smell and it was like, you know, it was like a light going off. And so I suppose being a journalist, I've been covering COVID and I just became, A, slightly panicked, I have to admit, because I didn't know what was going to happen. But B, I wanted, oh, yeah, at that you know, point, that was yeah. It was really early, and we were really, really sort of scared. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm probably talking too much. But the reality was that I just got incredibly curious and wanted to know what the hell had happened, and so the journey began. Mm. Um, so I guess you've got your smile back now. I do, but it took 18 months. Most people get it back oh. four to six weeks, and I had a, a, a pretty bad case. It was the earliest strain of, of COVID, and I assume um, I'd been travelling, I'd been covering COVID in Italy when it had just locked down, and I'm assuming that I just got a really big viral load early on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that does suck. Losing the sense of smell, it's something which, well, I guess – you know what? It's funny how interconnected your book choices as well with everything else and you. So I don't even know where to start with this interview, but it's going to tie in with everything else. So your book of choice for today is? Well, my book of choice when you ask me, I, it's funny because, you know, when you say, what's your favorite book? I honestly, I, I was flabbergasted, but then I immediately thought a book that really, really got me viscerally years and years ago when it came out. And I've read it two or three times since, and it's Perfume. Patrick Susskind's incredibly successful novel of the 1980s, I can't even remember now. Um, And I remember when I read it 
just being transported by this, you know, these descriptions of smells in 18th century Paris and, you know, this, this powerful story of a murderer who was driven by his smell. And so I thought, yes, that's got to be, that's got to be the book for me. <laughs> mm. um, the reason I had to throw it in there is because, like, obviously you just showed me your copy of that book. <laughs> it was it was battered. So this isn't something you're just coming up with it right now because of your book recently. It's obviously a connection you've had for a long time. So the reason I'm saying that is, was the sense of, is smell something you've been obsessed with before? Like, is it something you've always particularly appreciated or anything like that? Well, it's funny you ask that because I think it's after that I lost my sense of smell that I realized that it was an incredibly important sense to me. Um, I don't know whether I mentioned to you before, but I, I was writing another book um, prior to this all happening, and it's actually part of a, a PhD thesis. And it was set in 19th century Naples, and it's the story of a, a French perfumer who emigrated in 1839. He was bound for Ukraine, bound for Crimea, Odessa, but the ship was stopped in Naples because there was another pandemic of cholera. And so this man actually stopped in Naples by accident and from there on created this perfumery um, and soap making factory, which became really famous the world over in the next 50 years. So I was incredibly invested in that when I lost my sense of smell. So you can imagine the irony. <laughs> and so when I started to, you know, to investigate um, the science of smell and what we knew about the olfactory system, um, it was then that I realised that I had been really, I look back on some of the foreign correspondence stories that I'd done. I was Sydney Morning Herald and Age, Europe correspondent. I, I look back on some of the features in an earthquake in Italy where I started the feature with the smell of what happened when the cadaver dogs found bodies under the, uh, under the rubble. Um, I found another feature where I'd spent time with the Italian coast guards um, on, a deep, on a rescue between Libya and Lampedusa before the Arab Spring, when, um, you know, when these massive amounts of people were, were taking little boats and, and dying. And I just remember the, the smell of these, the fear of, of people on these boats. So in my writing, uh, unbeknownst to me, smell had been sort of interwoven. So I guess it's been with me. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah, I mean, like, honestly, it just, again, looking at that book and how bad it was, you have, it, it seems like it's been a part of you. And like, I guess straight away, one of the things that leaps out, because I do think of that book and people who seem to like it, and it's like, it's such a visceral story, like as in it's focus on smell and that like, that very sensory experience. It's very like raw and which you can say about smell, I think of all the senses as well is in many ways, like that kind of falls in that category as well. And then I'm looking at you and your your history and where you've gone and what you've done. And it's like, that is someone who's doing exactly that in a lot of ways, like living right there, like on a very raw feature. So I guess is that something you always like chased as well? Or was it just a development that happened uh, look, with your journal? You know, I, I have, I mean, in, in the book that, uh, you know, in the book that we've written on The Scent, it, there's a lot of memoir because I wanted to try to get people to understand moments uh, where smell is important to them. And, you know, as an example, 
Um, I don't know whether you this has happened to you, but it certainly happened to me. I, I have if I smell a particular perfume, it's a Christian Dior one. It always I recognize it immediately. It gives me a bit of a funny flutter in my stomach, and I realized that it was the the perfume that my mum used to wear when my parents were going out. They were quite sociable. They'd go to film festivals, and as a kid, I really didn't like them going out. So you know, this smell brings back that sort of memory of my mother who's happily still alive so I don't it's but it's it's more the sense of the memory of them going out and you know when are they coming back and oh we've got a babysitter so you know I I suppose writing the book and, and exploring and talking to philosophers to chemosensory scientists to people that could explain how we smell um, I had no idea that smell is the only sense that bypasses the part of the brain that processes uh, rational things. It goes straight to the amygdala, which is the most primitive part of the brain. And so we respond to smells viscerally. We have a, a gut response. And that's why, you know, we, a smell will take us back to a memory and why Proust so very famously, you know, dipped the madeleines into his tea and went right back to his nanny's uh, <laughs> kitchen. Mm. Yeah, I think that, and that that's part of like, because I'll be honest, I have a low key obsession myself with smell and it's, 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 it's placement in the Guess sphere because uh, I a quick background for me. I growing up had a um, deviated septum, which resulted in me being the just cliche snot nosed kid. So I essentially had no sense of smell until I was about nineteen, and um, because it was just constantly blocked, and I just never really fixed it, never really thought about it, just put up with it. And then I think it's probably impacted my sense of smell forever. To be honest, it's a bit down from what most people have, and because of that, I think I've intellectually appreciated smell. <laughs> yeah, I can completely understand that. And, you know, the deviated septum is, I spoke to so many ear, nose and throat people too. It's a very, uh, it's quite a common thing. Um, and it really does and can affect your sense of smell. So did you, did you have it operated on? And, and is that when it kind of fixed things a bit or, or gave you a bit? Yeah, so I don't know why I just didn't ever have it looked at earlier. So I, when I was about, I think I would have been 19 maybe, I, uh, I had, because they, they had to, Saw, grind the bone down and also they had to trim my turbinates which are like the two which you probably know I do now like help you breathe yeah <laughs> so I, I've got a detailed logic yes they had to actually go in and like one of them was uh, malformed because of an entire life of only being the one that works so they had to like cut it and then stitch it up so that it was like a normal size yeah um, yeah so I've had a, technically I've had a nose job <laughs> I now understand why smell means a bit more to you perhaps than somebody who hasn't had the two you know the two fluctuating um, situations it, it really yeah it, it is I think it is something that it's only when you lose it or you've been without it that you understand just how immensely important it is I do, and like I think that's I'm sure because uh, your your book that you've written it's like it, it's more of an analysis of its value and stuff like that. How do you how did you structure it? I guess before I go into my question, like how is it kind of like is there a journey within it? it very, be- well, very much so. So it's um we were very keen not to, to ensure that even though COVID. Because of this this global pandemic of loss of smell, um, effectively the world scientists or factory science scientists, so it's quite a small community really globally, focused all their efforts on looking at what was happening. So suddenly smell was put in the public spotlight in the scientific community, but I didn't really want to do a book about COVID. I was really keen to use my own experience and, but to take people on a journey 
to learn about the sense of smell. So um, we looked at um, attitudes to smell in the 18th century, attitudes to smell in the great metropolises of Europe, Paris and London, where the great stench of, of industrialization changed laws and, and, you know, made planning laws what they are today. We looked at, um, you know, Robert, amazingly, uh, Robert's a biographer, actually, and written lots and lots of books, but he um, delved into the archives and found that Wordsworth, the great romantic poet who is best known for his, you know, his beautiful words about um, nature was actually anosmic and had never been ever had a sense of smell and so he found two primary sources really important sources to show that the man who wrote daffodils had no idea of how they smelled he could only tell you how they looked <laughs> um, you know we <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was pretty extraordinary. I, I'm hoping that it's, you know, I'm hoping that for the, the, the reader, it's a journey into the sense of smell. We, of course, did investigate and reconstructed how the world learned about this sudden and very mysterious loss of smell that came with COVID. And then we went into the, the laboratories of, of scientists, you know, from Harvard, Bob Data, who's a professor who actually was the first to discover how COVID um, took the sense of smell away right through to I spent a week in Dresden with, um, with the grandfather of, of olfactory science, a professor called Thomas Hummel, um, and I spent a week with them in the in anatomy labs and actually held a brain in my hand and I've seen a turbinate, a proper turbinate in, in, All right. in a head that opens. <laughs> I really oh my God, okay. <laughs> had some pretty extraordinary experiences to, to take the reader along on this journey to really learn how it works and how humans have, have responded to it over, over the, the last few centuries. I hope it's entertaining, mm. not just science. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're tying it in with like your own personal interactions, I'm sure it can be, because I do find interesting, like your background and where you've been from. You grew up, which we said before the show, but yeah, born in Italy, moved to Australia when you were six years old and then was there until like much later in life, 45. So that means you were, I guess the another connection I'm immediately making in my head right now as I think about both smell and the book you've chosen Um an immigrant's parents, you would have had proper Italian parents, which as someone with proper Greek parents, um, it means you grow up with like food and all that. It's a very big part of your life, more so than it is now for everyone. But for us, it was there like from the beginning. Before, <laughs> yeah, from the beginning. Yeah, essentially. So I guess, again, that sensory, that appreciation for food and taste and all that sort of stuff, it, it's kind of ingrained in you forever. So was that like something you felt a disconnect with compared to other people, like because you had that in your household growing up, um, was it pretty common everywhere you were around? Like, I guess, yeah. Oh, look, I mean, I, I know exactly what you mean about the immigrant experience. I, you know, I, I grew up on Sydney's North Shore, which is very, um, very non-immigrant in my time. I think we, I was the only one. Wow, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and our food was very different. Our food was, uh, you know, I, I'm Neapolitan-born. Um, my mother's a great cook. And so food and, and flavor and all the joys of the things that come with Mediterranean cooking were very much part of my, my life as I was growing up. And I guess that was one of the really interesting um, aspects of, of, of delving into the science for this book is that I always knew that, you know, I always thought we tasted with our tongues. So sweet, bitter, umami, you know, the five things that our tongue tells us. But I had no real idea that flavor comes from your nose. So if you block your nose, 
you can't tell the difference between an orange jelly bean and a vanilla jelly bean. You just can't unless you can see one's orange and one's white. So the whole sort of that, that whole physiology of flavour and the joys of the, those nuances of, you know, the zest of an orange or, or you know, th- those things that are just so subtle that I had no idea how important the nose was. Absolutely none. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, uh, sadly, it's one of the ones which I... Uh... I appreciate intellectually because I, I do have a very limited taste as well, unfortunately, as part of this uh, smell. It's still there. Like, it's not nothing, but I think I do like the uh, subtlety, which um, a lot of people might take for granted. So, again, I definitely understand what you mean with that. Well, I understand how you feel because I was there for 18 months. Thankfully, not, not now. <laughs> anyway. mm. And, again, I just go back because it is its smell is so intertwined with both the book you've chosen um, and then uh, like food and all that sort of stuff. But I always like tie it in with this zest. <laughs> yeah, you can taste this. You can smell, taste the zest when you've got the sense of smell inclined. But it also is like a zest of like just a rawness of like <laughs> – I don't want to say, I'm always going to sound like I'm talking cliche, but because I am an immigrant son as well, I think I can actually uh, get away with it. But like, it's that more loving, like gushing sort of thing, which I think some people can find a bit different. And I feel like it ties into the book as well. This like that rawness of life and like just seizing it all, even though the book is about a loner, essentially. I Um, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think, um, you know, it's the story of a murderer, obviously. And it's the story of... Of a, of a, it's a love story and a terrible love story at the same time. I mean, it, it's really interesting that there's another tie between perfume um, and the incredible sensory uh, word pictures that Patrick Susskind gave us of, of that period in in Paris. Um, and our book, because one of the things that we looked at was uh, was there's a, a big link between anosmia, which is the the lack of smell, the loss of smell, and depression. And we had a uh, we went backwards and looked at Michael Hutchins, um, you know, the lead singer of In Excess's Life, and re looked at the documentary, which I don't know if you've seen or if anybody's seen. Fantastic documentary of this this very incredibly charismatic singer and and he talks about after he had a head injury he lost his sense of smell and plunged into a depression and then we learned that when he was madly in love with Kylie Minogue he took her on a, a walk through Paris a day's walk through Paris to follow the places that perfume and Patrick Suskin took Grenouille so he had this um passion for that book and obviously was an extremely sensual sensory person um, had taken this girlfriend at the time into Paris and and taken her into the real places of his favorite book and then clearly you know after he died his friends talked about his depression and many of them talked about the link between him saying the world doesn't feel the same way what you were talking about it does, I don't have the same zing I, I everything looks muted I can't taste anything I can't taste wine for, for him the world it was as if it had gone from color to to monocolor you know to black and white so I you know the question you just or the observations you made before my very long-winded answer they they make a lot of sense <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So, like, I, I didn't even think about it like that. So, in terms of, um, is this? Are you saying this science stuff backing it up? Like the idea of uh... when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Yeah, I guess the human experience being enriched in like, I guess is there a measurable way of saying, oh yeah, like, and, and again, I, I'm someone who actually has a lacking sense of smell in a lot of ways. So I can, <laughs> I'm not being mean to those people because I'm actually one of them, but uh yeah, like, is there almost a grayness to life when you don't have that sense as much, like, and more so than a lot of the others in a way that people don't appreciate? Are you saying that there's something well, evidence of that? There's, um, you know, Thomas Hummel, the professor, uh, the German professor who I mentioned earlier, who is really in the olfactory community globally is is seen as as the grandfather of, of olfactory science. He was one of the first to do some really interesting experiments with um, the link between depression and loss of smell. Now, he makes very clear that not everybody responds that way. Some people just adapt. You know, they just go, well, that's it could be a lot worse, um, you know, this is the way it is, and they'll adapt by putting more salt in their food or, or going for more sweet things and texture, you know, while others are absolutely axed by it. As, you know, my example before, Michael Hutchins clearly was. I know I was. Um, I interviewed a lot of people that lost their sense of smell um, in COVID. And then, you know, there was a wave of, of smell distortions that some people really suffered with as they recovered. Um, smell distortion called parosmia, where everything smells like cadavers and it's an awful thing. Um, quite well known, but particularly well known now in COVID. So not everybody responds the same way, but Hummel showed that the olfactory bulb in depressed people loses volume. And if they respond well to cognitive behaviour therapy or antidepressants, the olfactory bulb regains volume. So quite extraordinarily, you can't, it's, it's one of those links that's, you know, is it causal? Did it come, did one lead to the other? We don't really know. There's lots of, lots of uh, experimentation going on, study going on now. But there is, there is without doubt an, a, a link between depression and anosmia. Um, and there's lots so, of papers footnoted in the book, I'll have you know, <laughs> that, that readers can go back to if they want to read about it. That's fascinating. Like, as in, I guess my straight of thought is, is there, a, is there a thing showing potentially the other way? Like people with depression then have, like have they measured it that way to see if there's an impact? If you're saying that the well, that, mental health stuff actually increased the olfactory Well, that's the problem that they don't know because inevitably what they found with, with patients that have ended up in this clinic in Dresden, which is, is one of the best known ones, is that depressed patients have a lowered olfactory bulb volume. Oh. But whether one, chicken or egg, we don't really know, you see. Although there okay. is a response um, as the sense smell comes back, the olfactory bulb clearly is exercised and its volume increases. But does that mean that that helps your depression lift? We don't know. It's just, it's still, yeah, oh. <laughs> chicken egg. That is so interesting. <laughs> it's so, it really it's so is. fascinating. <laughs> yeah. I don't know there's such a measurable way of like looking at that. Okay. So uh, to go in the actual opposite direction as well, because I'm just, again, I love just tying everything always back to the book and yourself and what you've done and stuff. But I guess uh, one of the things you could almost like off the top of my head now looking at the book is someone who's suffering from the opposite. 
essentially, even though he himself doesn't phrase it like that in a lot of ways, but it's someone who's like smells too much and like has the, an issue that way. Is that like something which again, you could almost draw a thematic link between that and people who feel too much of anything and like that actually sends them down a path which they don't want to go down? Well, I mean, yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, Grenouille, the Jean-Baptiste Grenouille, the, he was, he was, he was that very unloved orphan um, who was born uh, in that dreadful sort of manner, um, abandoned, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but then this incredible sense of smell that was, you know, it, it was important in the beginning then turns out to be an obsession that leads him to, to well, leads him to murder. So, yes, I think I can imagine, I mean, there, there have been times before I lost my sense of smell when it was so strong. Like my, I've got children, I've got four children. Um, as teenagers, I could smell if they'd been in a smoky room. <laughs> I'd go, you've been smoking or, you know, <laughs> or you've got beer on your breath or something. So, I, you know, yeah. it can actually sort of be a bit over the top. So that's why I sort of love this book because it takes it into a whole new level of, of murderous obsession. <laughs> and I guess uh, on, on the note of two things I kind of wanted to unpack there. So like one is uh, first, yes, in terms of the obsession stuff, is that something you've felt in your own journey now being a journalist and where you've gone around the world? Is that something you've like, and the fact you've written a book because you're curious about something, <laughs> straight away draw a correlation there with you. Well, are you telling me I'm obsessive? You've only just met. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, look, I, I, I think I'd prefer to, to, uh, to describe my mind as curiosity. I think, you know, as a journalist, a, a lifetime doing this job, which I love, and every morning I wake up and feel really lucky that I, I do something I love. I think it's it's really just the desire to know. And um, for me, when I when I lost my sense of smell, there were the two things. There was the fact that this disease, you know, we know that, as you know, with, with your, with the deviated septum, um, we know that anosmia has occurred. Obviously, people have had it in the past. It's quite common with viral illnesses, um, you know, with with injury, et cetera, et cetera. But it's never, we've never had a, a global epidemic, I suppose, of loss of smell where it was sudden. Because people, as I described, and I had it myself, it, it from one moment to the next, it disappears like a light bulb going off. So for me, I was just obsessed with, well, I shouldn't use that word. I was just really curious. <laughs> Caught you <laughs> done. No, you me. Damn. I became incredibly curious to find out what was going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got yeah. me. You got me. All right. <laughs> uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I, and I get, and so to go on the um, path of this, like the journalist part of you, and I do think this probably ties in with the work you've done, and I'm very I'm sure everyone who listens to this would be so curious working with your husband on writing this and like what, how your writing styles worked and like the writing involved in it. I guess that's something I actually want to hear a bit more about because not for like dirty, like, oh, tip of the cigarettes, like as in just what, how does that work? I guess as a journalist. There's no, trust me, there's no secrets to us working together. I mean, we, we, uh, we were journalists together on the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, and then we ended up for a period um, as parliamentary reporters, so um, state politics, covering politics in New South Wales. We were in a newsroom together for years. So, and then, uh, you know, there are a few times when we were working in the same unit um, and quite often journalists will work together on investigations or big features. And then when I was posted to London um, as a Europe correspondent for the Herald and um, Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, our youngest was little. She was 
seven at the time and he stepped back to let me go ahead and I was traveling so much I was had a bag packed pretty much constantly because the age or the herald would deploy me to whatever was was happening whether it was a g7 you know in Belgium or an earthquake in Italy or whatever and so his career um, shifted and he had written a couple of books at the time and he started writing books um, mainly biographies of long lost Australians and that took off so he would now and he cringes because he says I can't say it but he's now an author whereas I still consider myself a journalist so when it came to this book um, really it was natural we share an office um, we have since we turned freelance and left when I left the Herald in, in 2012 um, and yeah, we it just it, it was a very natural sort of uh, transition. I did most. It had to be in the first person because I was the person you know that had the experience. But he was there, um, you know. As I say, he he found the Wordsworth stuff that was fantastic. When we reconstructed how the world learned about anosmia, who the first doctor was that that actually realised there was a link and we found a young doctor in in, in Italy. Um, we realised that the search engine, you know, the, the loss of smell, there was a massive increase in people typing it into search engines like Google around March. So that alerted scientists. So all the kind of reconstruction investigative stuff that journalists do so well, he was there, you know, um, driving it. Um, so... I mean, in the past, he used to, he laughed that um, I used to, he used to be the one that would vomit onto the page and I'd clean it up. <laughs> in this case, I was the one that was sort of pretty much vomiting constantly and he was adding stuff and cleaning up. It was an inverted uh, experience. Right. I know it sounds, I, honestly, that whole story sounds like such a, great journey like such a storybook sort of thing almost from a, two journalists working together and getting to that point that's like that's really sweet to be honest oh thank Sorry you cheesy for a second but that's like that's the dream scenario in a lot of ways like for him to go even into becoming a published author that's even though he doesn't like being called that that's really I, I think we're both um we're both risk takers and uh you know we left we left our newspapers I mean I loved the Herald I was with the Herald since I was you know very, very young. I spent 30 years with Fairfax and, and, um, and it was the best time of my life. But at some point, I, we realized that our careers to be able to continue to do what we really wanted to do, which was big pieces and pieces that looked out into the world. We, we, we thought we had to sort of jump off the cliff together and, and try something new. And we haven't really looked back. We've been much poorer, can I say, but <laughs> it's never been boring, put it that way. Yeah, yeah. And like that is something which uh, maybe, and now this is going off in a bit of a different direction, but something which, again, I find just endlessly fascinating. The idea of these long form and deeper dive investigative pieces to go to put on a different hat for yourself right now, maybe for just a second. Um, there is an issue, I think, in a lot of places where that isn't give, being given as much funding as it used to and sort of stuff like that. Is that something you've like, is that part of what you're saying here? Like, because it seems like everyone talks about now, like those, the best pieces for actually positive impacting society are now the ones in which you are getting gutted and not giving the time they need. Look, I could do an entire other hour with you on this. I mean, I'm, I, you know, we're both passionate journalists. We, uh, we worked on the best broadsheets in the country and um, I'm lucky enough still to work for the Herald as a freelance and to work for the Australian as a freelance. And, but, 
you know, there is no doubt that in Australia, the 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 lack of resource, um, the cutting of resources, the constant pressure on the ABC, the public broadcaster, the fact that <clears throat> there are you know there are limited numbers of papers for people to choose, and the fact that they're struggling to to stay. Um, with their nose above water financially means that all the things that we used to do where we would spend weeks or months on one really good deep dive into whether it be corruption or politics or science, it, they can't, you know, it doesn't happen anymore. It's happening the world over, but I suppose in London, um, it's very obvious to me because in London, if you go to a, uh, to a, um, you know, to a news agent, you have this array of, of you've still got 15, 20 papers. And if you're left wing, you can pick up the Guardian. If you're right, you can pick up the Telegraph. But you have voices from all spectrums. Um, and, it, you know, I think diversity of media is so incredibly important to democracies. And that makes me very sad because I love Australia. But I do think the media is really suffering. And, um, and it's a great pity. Yeah, I mean, I feel that uh, it's it's strange. I've never felt more. I don't know if there's a country that's got a greater disconnect between what the media's position is and what the people's position is. Like even as evidenced by the recent election, and just seeing like there wasn't a single paper in the country that was uh, not even like partially pro to the left wing party, which is Labour, which I wouldn't even say is necessarily left wing. <laughs> like it's very strange. Like it's almost like, and because of that, I, th- I think just the respect for the media here is like plummeted completely in terms of. For, anyways, the classic legacy media, I suppose. If you want to yeah, start man, putting I, on your conservative sounding hat, which I don't want to say that casually. No, yeah, but I mean, it's, 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 it, it's very interesting to hear you say that, and particularly because you're there, um, and, you know, for, for us to watch. I mean, obviously, having covered politics for years and years in Australia, I follow politics, and Robert follows politics passionately in Australia. And yes, the coverage um, leading up to the election was. was Jaw dropping. It was it was there were times when I would just uh, pull my hair out because you had no idea what <clears throat> the opposition were offering, and all it was was these incredible moments of sort of gotcha. Oh, you know, with with journalists, it was all about them. It was all about questions to see if they could trip up the person that was speaking. But in the end, the voter had had no sense really of what they what they were choosing between. It was it was truly it was truly shocking <laughs> yeah i think i think a lot of people outside of like australia i, I, I just can't imagine any other country has it to this degree like this, as a friend of mine once said we actually have in australia in terms of the big media companies it's as bad as china in terms of like propaganda being utterly one way in from the major areas it's it's a weird thing to see in a way yeah, i wouldn't I go that far <laughs> no, 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 I know. <laughs> that's a bit hyperbolic me <laughs> that is hyperbolic okay yes as a journalist you're gonna pull me up on that <laughs> like i'm not gonna sit in an interview and let someone drop something like that so casually it's true that's why i always but, I said my friend <laughs> yeah but i think you know that's why it's it's really great that there are there's some new sort of voices and and um there's some smaller publishing um you know, the Saturday paper, et cetera, in Melbourne. And also it's really great that there's more sort of digital outlets where people can, uh, you know, can go and find some find some things. And also you've got some, I must say, you've got a couple of pretty fantastic citizen journalists like um, that pretty wild, friendly Geordie who... <laughs> yeah, I know. He, uh, he ruffles feathers, but uh, ultimately I do agree. He's got at least like it's actually legitimate, like what he's... 
supports that. Tell you what, every every now and then he's broken a big story. So you know, yeah, really big breaking story. stories on corruption. Yeah, yep. regardless of people might uh, disagree with some of the like the way it's presented, but the fact is, yeah, it's yeah. it's legitimate. Yeah, like, it's breaking. It's it's investigative journalism for what it's meant to be in, so. in a different form, <laughs> not a non traditional <laughs> very- form. <laughs> Yeah. Not, not- <laughs> a lot more trolling <laughs> tone to it. Exactly. Uh, um, okay. Well, look, I've we've kind of jumped around a little bit there, but uh, I I couldn't couldn't let you leave without hearing a little bit about that. One more thing before you go, yeah. I just did want to ask this as well because it relates to the book and your own journey. So, perfume set in France, and it's very focused there in the journey that it goes on there. Um, your own background, for obviously being from Italy, and then spending time in Australia before going to the UK. Was that like sense of like the, the the old country? Was that a part of like you growing up and something you wanted to experience more of? Uh, like again, that that because it's a very different world, but it is much more closer to Italy or France or the Mediterranean countries. I feel like. Do you mean that? Do you mean perfume? As in, yeah, yeah. yeah. So perfume. The story is being set in France and there, and I feel like you might not say French itself is like such a big character, but that time though that place like i wouldn't say france specifically as much as it's like a mediterranean vibe almost yeah yeah i know what you mean and i I, i'm not sure that i read it that way certainly the first or second time but um i think probably when i was working on on the book it's set in naples and the french perfumer there's no doubt because there was this great link between you know between a, a perfumer that left paris in 1839 and then went off to to create a perfumery in another country and and Naples is where I was born and obviously I I know it like the back of my hand because as a, as a kid we went back every two years it was part of my my dad's contract at the time till he decided to stay in Australia so yeah there was definitely a, a very much a visual link um, between the sights uh, the, the described sounds the incredible described smells um, and yeah, and Naples, I suppose, also Paris at the time um, was a pretty dirty, smelly place. And, and as much as I love Naples, it's my favourite city in the world. It can also be very dirty, smelly, but that's part of what it what makes it um, gives it its joy. So uh, yes, I think there were there were great links between between those two or three things. I, I, yeah. You're right. No, no, that's fair. <laughs> Nailed it. All right. Nailed it. <laughs> so, made up for my China comment. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, okay. Well, look. I, I mean, we've jumped around a lot, but I've really enjoyed this chat. Um, I'll, I'll call. We'll call it off there. Uh, is there uh, before we sign off? I guess is there any? Um, like, firstly, thank you so much for being on. I know it was a pleasure. It was really here. very, very nice to meet you. I'm gonna. If I'm in Melbourne, I'm going to come and watch your uh, stand-ups. <laughs> Where do well, actually, I'm going to be closer to you very soon. I'm coming up to Edinburgh. Are you? Uh, very, very sure. Are yeah, you? Doing You're doing the Fringe. Yeah. Fantastic. August, is it? Yeah. So when? I will send me links. I always, always <laughs> wanted a, um, a, a reason to go. My daughter actually um, went up there and did something in her last year of school. So um, we went, yeah, it was, it was fantastic. Have you done it before? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've done it a few years now. So this is the first time back since... Since COVID. Just your smell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, it should be a lot of fun. It's the whole month of August. So, yeah, very fun. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I bet. Um, Yeah. But, uh, but yes, anyway, so in terms of you, though, uh, is there any, uh, anything you want to shout out before we close it off? No, not really. I mean, just say so buy the book. And- well, the book, um, so the book is out in, it's been out in the UK for a couple of weeks and it's out in Australia in September, on September 3. Um, in Australia, it's distributed with Simon and Schuster, but it'll be on Amazon and and 
Booktopia. bookshops and all the rest of them. Yeah. I'd and much bookshops, prefer yeah. the bookshops, to be honest, but there you go. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's pretty and, I yeah, I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think uh, it, it sounds super, like, like I said, it's a topic actually that I'm very close to my heart. Yeah, so. <laughs> I, I think I think actually I think you're the prime, a prime candidate for enjoying it, I hope, anyway. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it so, sounds great. Yeah. Okay, well. Um, thank you very much for being on, Paola. And uh, yeah, it was a pleasure. It's good to meet you, and um, and hopefully, or maybe we'll be, get up there because we're stuck in that. We are. We're not going anywhere till September, so maybe we'll take a little trip to Edinburgh. <laughs> All right. Best of luck and break a leg. Nice. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you want to help support this show and all the other shows we do here at Sans Pants Radio, then why not subscribe to SansPantsPlus.com. For as little as $5 a month, you could have access to a whole bunch of bonus shows and content. Once again, that's SansPantsPlus.com.